0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. I want to encourage you. To go ahead and open in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter five. Uh, we're going to be in verses uh, eighteen. I'm sorry, not eighteen. Verses eight through twenty. Eight through twenty. Ecclesiastes chapter five. As I was uh, as I was preparing this week and thinking about the, the message that um, Solomon has for us and the Lord has for us this morning, a scene from a, a movie kept coming to mind, and and I'm just going to share it with you. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie A Christmas Story, but, but there's a scene in that movie where Ralphie, who's the little boy in it, um, has been waiting eagerly. He's anticipating this decoder ring coming in the mail. For he thinks that as he, when he gets this decoder ring, he's going to be able to decode all of the secrets that he's hearing about on the Little Orphan Annie radio show. There's this secret message that only those that are in the innermost circle can understand. And so he waits longing for the day to come. And the day finally comes and he, and he runs in front of the radio and he, he writes down the code. And then he goes up into the bathroom where I guess he can think. <laughs> closes the door. And he starts furiously scribbling down on the paper the letters one after the other. Trying to decode this message that he, he so wanted to know. He so thinks is going to be so important. And when he gets to the end of, of writing all the letters down, the camera pans out. And you see the words on the page, be sure to drink your Ovaltine. <laughs> and you can see the look on his face. It's like, you have got to be kidding me. There, there has got to be something more than this. And, and he ends just dejected. The, the very thing he was longing for, the thing that he thought would be satisfying, he, 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 he spent his money and he waited the time. It left him feeling empty and bankrupt. And as Solomon is going to be uh, talking to us this morning about the love of riches and the, and the vanity that comes from those, I think we're going to see that there's a similar outcome for those who trust in the riches. It leads to frustration and feeling a maddening sense of, of, of vexation. The love of money will never lead us to, being feel, to feeling satisfied. He says, the thing that actually, this is what Solomon says, the thing that's guaranteed is that we will not be satisfied by riches. He says that the love of money and wealth is hevel, it's vanity, it's like trying to corral the wind. In fact, it's useless. And he says the love of money leads to all sorts of problems. And, he, and he's going to list those in our passage. He's going to talk us through multiple issues that come about from the love of money. And yet he also doesn't leave us there, but he shows us the solution in verses 18 through 20. He points us to a glorious hope that we have. He says, he says that we're not meant to love money, but we are meant to love God. It's the unhappy fool that centers his heart and his life on his riches, for they do not satisfy. This is the main idea the unhappy fool centers his heart and his life on riches, but they don't satisfy. And yet the wise person enjoys the good gifts of God by loving the God who gives them. By, by finding our delight in God, we're actually able to enjoy all of the good gifts that he gives. And so as we walk through the passage this morning, we're going we're to basically break it down into two parts. One, the love of riches doesn't satisfy. It leads to ruin. Verses 8 through 17. And then verses 18 through 20, we see that true enjoyment of God's gifts starts and continues through enjoying of the giver of those gifts, our King and Lord. So, brothers and sisters, let me just pray for us. Let me ask the Lord to help us uh, as, we, as we study his word. Father, Lord, this is your word and it is for us today. Father Lord, I pray that as we as we are confronted by your word, by the by, the gracious and, and loving words of Solomon, please help us to see, God, are there places where we are, are buying into at least the desire to love things more than to love you? Father, it's so tempting to trust in ourselves and to trust in the things that you provide instead of actually trusting in you. Father, please let us not do that. Lord, convict us of areas Uh, of sin, where that takes place, Lord. And Lord, please lead us to a greater hope. Lead us to our true hope that is found in Christ Jesus alone, to an inheritance that is secured by him forever. Lord, you are our provider. Lord, you are our ultimate good. Let us look to you. Lead us, I pray, in joy. Let Let us be convicted and transformed, but also lead us to celebrate and be thankful for all of the good things you give. we love you, and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would look with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 5, starting in verse 8. Brothers and sisters, hear the word of the Lord this morning for us. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watching by higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. There's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those wretches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and shall take nothing for the toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all of his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them, And to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And so as we walk through the passage, we're going to see that contrast. What does it look like for the one who loves riches? What's the outflow of that? But also, what is the outflow for for those who love God? Those who pursue him and love the the giver of the gifts more than the gifts themselves. Like, how do we have joy in those things? We're going to see that contrast. And so let's begin with the first place that Solomon does. The love of riches does not satisfy, but it leads to ruin. In verses 8 through 17, he's going to show us here numerous ways in which the love of money is a foolish pursuit. It is a bad investment that leads to all sorts of negative consequences for those that pursue them. This teaching is also echoed in the New Testament. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 says, The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. So it's not just Solomon saying this. It's all throughout the Bible, this idea. We see it, Old and New Testament. And if anybody could speak to this topic with credibility and authority, it would be Solomon. Just think about this. He was the wealthiest man of his day, a man of, of the highest wisdom, And one of the strongest, you know, at least most uh, glorious rulers of his time as well in power. He's experienced the vanity of these pursuits firsthand. When he talks about the dangers of loving riches, he knows what he's talking about because he says he pursued them headlong. We've already talked about that in Ecclesiastes. He said he set his heart to understand all pleasure, all of it, wherever it was, he went after it hard. And as he's telling us this, he says, there is no satisfaction for the one who loves riches. And so he begins uh, in verses eight through nine with a short description of what does the love of riches look like in society? What, what can be some of the negative consequences for, for a group of people, not just individuals, but, but for, um, for the people of a society? And in verses eight through nine, he talks about this idea that there can be no justice. Justice doesn't come for the weak in, in these societies sometimes. He critiques a love of money and says um, a similar thing to what he said in in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, where he's he's highlighting for the reader. He says, Don't be amazed at the oppression of the poor and at the violation of justice and righteousness, especially by those in power to those who are under their authority. You know, it's a sad reality in society that many times those who have power are going to use it to take advantage of those who are under them. It happens in, like, communist societies. It also happens in capitalist societies. It happens in corporations. It can even happen in friend groups and those kinds of things, too. There's, there's always there's opportunities for, for those that have power to take advantage of those that are weaker than them, to take advantage and oppress the poor, and there, there be no justice. And as we think about this passage, we can say, yeah, that's, that's something that we, that we want to fight against but is that tendency in our own hearts as well? You know, where we might be willing to take advantage of someone else so that we have wealth, or where we might take credit for a project so that, you know, all of us worked on it, but I want to be seen to be the one that gets the praise and the glory so that I get the promotion down the road. Or maybe don't help others advance because you might want to take their position as well there's different ways in which this can kind of be can be played out even in our own lives as it is in society and so Solomon's tone here seems to be one of warning but at the end also in verse 9 there's there's a hint of hope as well things can be different if there's a good king if a good king is is caring about the cultivation of his fields he actually will care about the health of his workers yeah it seems like that's not always what takes place We recognize that this is not the ideal. God himself cares for the poor. And he cares that we would care for the poor, those that are hurting, those that are weak. Just one example, and there's numerous examples in the scriptures, Psalm 41.1. Blessed is the one who considers the poor. In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. And so we see part of this love of, of, of wealth and riches leads to no justice for the poor. But he also goes later and he says that There's other things that happen as well, verses 10 through 11. He continues to say one of the most maddening and frustrating aspects of pursuing wealth, you know, as he quotes the great British philosopher Mick Jagger, I can't get no satisfaction, though I try and I try and I try. I can't get it. There's no satisfaction. For, for the love of money is never going to be satisfied. There's never going to be enough. And we recognize this, right? You need to think about your own life for a second. You know, Maybe when you got your first paycheck, whenever that was, a year ago or 40 years ago, right? And you had that paycheck and you were really excited to go out and purchase something. Maybe you're thinking, man, I can't wait to go get a meal. So you go down to like Taco Bell and you're really excited to get the, the $3 combo at, at Taco Bell, but you know what? Once you're, you know, working more and you get more paychecks and, and you know, you're, you're making more money, you don't just keep eating at Taco Bell. You might, but soon your, your thoughts are like, hmm, I might like that Foothills Milling Company. <laughs> right? That, that's probably a little better than Taco Bell. I think I want to go there this week. Right? We understand, like, there's always places to spend more money. There's always a need for more, at least sometimes in our minds. There's always a shinier gadget. There's always a a bigger car. There's always a nicer kitchen that you could remodel into. Or there's, you know, like all sorts of fancy pillows or whatever else you might, you know, that might catch your attention. Cat likes pillows. That's why I threw that in there. (laughs) The problem with a pillow, though, is you buy a pillow and then you have to change a whole bunch of other stuff to match the pillow. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) But see, here's the thing. Our ramen packs soon get replaced with a pantry full of food, and yet we still can't find something that we want to eat. Not only are there countless things to spend our money on, but the reality is that as goods increase, so do the mouths who want to eat them. That's what Solomon says here in verses 10 and 11. In other words, the more you have, the more people are going to be asking from you. Whether this is the government or your own family or other people, they're going to be asking for you. No matter how much you have, there's always going to be more who are in need. You just think about the the greatest philanthropists in our day. They can give away billions of dollars. Still tremendous need out in the world. He goes on to say that the only advantage for the rich is that they get to see those goods for a second before they're gone. They might actually get to see them, but they don't necessarily get to use them. They don't get any advantage from them. It's like pizza on the table in front of a bunch of middle school or high school boys. It'll be there for a moment and you turn your back and it's gone, right? Or beef jerky at my house. My kids love beef jerky. Uh, Evelyn calls it beef turkey. And uh, seriously, as soon as it's in the house, within five minutes, the bag is gone. Hopefully Kat bought two bags. But it's, it's gone quicker than you even get to, you just basically see it and it's not there anymore. As soon as things come in, mouths are there to consume them. This is what Solomon's pointing out. The desires never end, whether they're from you or from other people. There's never going to be a time when you think that you've arrived financially and you, know, you think, hmm, I think I have enough. In fact, go ahead and give my paycheck to the other guy. That's okay. No big deal. I've got enough here. We usually don't do that even though you very well may be very generous, just saying the heart is, is that it's, there's always something else behind it. Solomon highlights not only is there no satisfaction and justice, but also there can be no sleep for the rich, for those that are striving after, these loving these riches. He highlights this reality in verse 12 where he says, Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. So the laborer who works hard daily, whether he has a little bit or a lot, he sleeps well. He worked hard all day and he's going to sleep. He's exhausted. But the rich is consumed by, at least here he's pointing out like two different ideas. One is probably the the things that are consuming his mind keep him up at night. The you know With increased riches come increased responsibilities and all of the things that you have to attend to. As you think about your responsibilities and who's going to be where and all of this other stuff, it keeps you up at night. But he also says... Because of the abundance of food that's in their stomach, he's kept up at night as well. Because of all the fatty food that he eats, because of all the richness, his stomach, he has indigestion and he can't even sleep because of that. What gain is it? He can eat all that he wants and he feels terrible at night. It's actually happened to me once before I went to a Brazilian steakhouse one of those places where you get the little card and you flip it green and they bring delicious meats to you continually. And then you can flip the card over and they'll stop, but you don't have to stop. You can flip it back over and they'll bring more. But there comes a point where you can only eat so much meat, even though I didn't eat the salad and I didn't eat a lot of breakfast. <laughs> I was physically sick at the end of that meal that I didn't want to eat meat for, uh, for days. And that's probably not reality, but it was a long time. This is what he's saying about the rich though. Like even there's no gain in in having abundance because those that don't have a lot, they sleep well at night. And if you have a bunch, you may not even sleep well because it's gonna even upset your stomach. He's just highlighting some of this just futility, this frustration, this this sense of like, ah, it doesn't make sense. And then he continues in verse 13 and he says, there's a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. I want you to think about something in your own life for a second. How much of of your time, just try to quantify it, you don't have to say it out loud, but just think about it for a second. How much of your time would you say is dedicated per week to getting stuff, whatever that stuff is, groceries, things you need to buy, whatever it is? And then also think about how much time do you have to dedicate to maintaining stuff that you already have? How much time do you have to spend repairing stuff that you have, stuff that's breaking that you've got to fix? You know, how how much time do you have to spend organizing the stuff and sorting the stuff and all of these other kinds of things? Rather than enjoying the things that we have and also being able to enjoy each other, like stuff takes time and it consumes part of our minds. And as you think about that, I also think about a, a similar thing. How often do I actually give away stuff that I already have? whether it's to bless others or whether it's to clear it out, because I recognize like, there's, there's all of this stuff everywhere. Solomon tells us here in this section that the love of money is heavily, for one of the reasons, because it can lead the rich to actually, these riches can harm the owner. We can have so much stuff that it becomes a hindrance to us. You know, whether it's in the, uh, the, the getting of that stuff, you're working hard, you're, you're expending your energy and your time, and it, and it can lead to harm that way, but also just in the keeping of those things. We can be so consumed with collecting and maintaining that we can miss the point of that stuff in the, in the first place. Right? Why do we even have it? When I was a kid, we used to I used to collect comic books. Me and my dad would go to these different conventions and stuff, and we would uh, it was really fun. I, it was almost like a scavenger hunt where you would try to find things that you were that you were missing. But I, but one of the things that I, at these shows all the time were vintage toys. They would have them all over the place. Star Wars figures in in boxes and you know in, in packages. Uh, they would have the you know the Millennium Falcon from the original Star Wars, and I would look at that and think, man, that was super cool. I think I used to have that when I was a kid. Um, But I looked that up just recently, and those things go in their box for something like $800 to $1,200 for a Millennium Falcon from the original Star Wars movies. And what happens is collectors will buy these things, and they will put them up on their shelf to display them, which looks pretty cool on a shelf. But what's the purpose of a toy? (laughs) Is it not a shame that the toy is in the box up on the top, not actually being used This thing's meant for a five-year-old to put Han Solo in it and fly it around in the living room so that there's battles going on there. That's what it's intended for. To put it on a shelf but never pull it out of the package is not what it was intended for. And the hoarder can be so occupied with keeping treasure that he misses the joys in actually using it. We get occupied with keeping it and maintaining it and relying on our stuff to make us happy, and it can't. You see, having stuff is not the issue. That's, that's not the main idea that he's talking about here. But loving stuff is the problem. And buying into the deception that your collection will actually be made complete one day and that you would be then satisfied by it once it is complete is a lie. Because there's always going to be something else to collect. There's always going to be some flaw that you find with one of them that you have that you then need to replace with a different one or whatever it is. You see, one of the biggest challenges too of hoarding is that we can begin to trust our stuff to make it secure and to make it safe. It's probably not toys that you're trusting in, though. It's, it's probably going to be things like your, your bank account, you know how much income you have, how much you have stored away and saved. But in Luke 12, Jesus tells us a parable that echoes a part of the problem with hoarding. He says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. This is Luke 12, verse 16. And the man thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he, and he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is is not rich toward God. This fool in this passage, he doesn't seek. He doesn't acknowledge. He does not thank God in his planning here. In his pride, he's depending upon himself. You know, how often do we eat Or do we work, or or do we build, or, or do we plan and make the same error? Where we might forget to seek what God would desire, or to thank Him for all of His faithfulness to us, and all of the various ways in which He is faithful daily. How often do we forget to do that? You see, we combat the desire to hoard and to trust in things by remembering that the faithfulness of God is steadfast every morning, every evening, every day for eternity. He is always faithful. And we fight against this tendency by regularly acknowledging him with thankfulness for his faithful providing to us. Again, in the morning, in the evening, when we go to sleep, at a meal, as we drive our car. Always. We fight against the hoarding mentality by faithfully giving of our finances even. We give our finances for God's work because we recognize all of this is yours, Lord. And so we want you to use it as you see fit. That's another way that we fight against hoarding, by entrusting our riches to God who gave them to us in the first place. These are yours. We hold them with with, uh, loose grips. Use them as you see fit. So Solomon highlights this reality that there can be no enjoyment at times from the riches. But then in verses 14 through 16, possibly an even sadder thing he brings up, that there can be a time where there's no inheritance for the offspring. You know how sad is it to think about? You might work all of your life, all of the days of your life, from sunup to sundown, day after day, week after week, year after year, and you might have nothing to pass on to your children when you, when you die. You know, we might, we might have a desire that our work would last, but he's saying one of the futile things that I see, one of the things that is most frustrating is that you could work all of your life and, and not have something to then pass on. All of the work, you don't get to take it with you, he says. He says the trouble with riches is that they can be there for a moment and they can be gone next, here today and gone tomorrow with nothing to pass on. And that might not even be your fault. It could be from like, you know, bad investments possibly. But it could also be like medical bills, cost a lot. You may have saved a lot, but then some tragedy or calamity comes. Your house burns down or whatever. There's there's numerous reasons why that might be. But riches could be here today and be gone the next day. And as, as parents or as just even you know kids, let's think about what kind of inheritance can we give to others that will actually last not just for a day, but for generations. You know, what, what are the types of things that would last and not be able to be taken away by moth or rust or decay? Can't be, be uh, lost by a storm or by a swindler. What types of inheritance can we give that would last and pay increasing dividends into the future? I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, though you may this morning, feel like you've got a lot. Or maybe maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you think, I'm down to my last dollar. We who love Jesus, we can offer our children and our grandchildren and our friends and our neighbors an inheritance that can never be taken away. An inheritance that we can give to them that lasts for eternity. We have an inheritance as 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5 says, he says, Peter says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. That's what we're talking about. That is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That inheritance that we give is the same one that's been entrusted to us, passed down from one generation to the next, from fathers to sons, mothers to daughters, friends to beloved friends. This lasting and perfect and amazingly free inheritance that we have received, we pass on to others by sharing the hope of Christ with them. Financial blessings for your kids aren't bad. I'm super thankful you know, that, that you know, people are able to do that. But that's not what's most important, Solomon says. Brothers and sisters, we're called to, to make disciples, make disciples of our own children, make disciples wherever we go, whether it's in Merivore or around the globe, even in, in Kenya, we're, we're called to make disciples, to, to entrust with others something that lasts for eternity. To pursue the Lord with all of our hearts is what we've been called to because it's through Christ that we have life and breath and everything. And so though riches may lead to no inheritance in Christ, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and kept in heaven for us. Secured by the work of Jesus. And Solomon points out one last thing in verse 17. He says that for those who love riches, there actually can be a lack of joy. Even in the places that should be joyful. And he uses the example of sitting around a dinner table, sharing a meal. Sitting there eating at the table. You know, eating is to be a time of, of community and rejoicing. You know, we share the table with our loved ones. We we share a meal with them and, and relationship with them. You know, at the table we're known by people and, and they know us. Right? We're able to share in joys and, and the happinesses of our life together there. But for the one who lives after riches, Solomon says that the end for them, not only might not they have something to show for their struggles. But even at the dinner table, in the most normal, common place that we would be every day, instead of light there, there would be darkness. Where laughter and discussion should take place instead is anger and frustration and vexation. That's straight out of verse 17. The rich isn't strengthened by his eating, but he sits in sickness. A sickness of the heart that is mirrored by his surroundings. This this lover of wealth here may have wealth as a treasure, but they've severely undervalued the things that have true value. And so the love of riches, we see this all throughout this whole section, leaves one spiritually bankrupt. Again, he's not saying that riches are the problem. He's saying that the love of riches are the problem. Because riches come from God. They're, they're a gift. But the problem is the love of riches, and it leads to spiritual bankruptcy. All throughout, no joy, no sleep, no enjoyment, no inheritance, no justice, no satisfaction. The love of money, the love of wealth, leads to being utterly dissatisfied. And so this is, this is the place where, thankfully, he doesn't leave us. Thankfully, he doesn't say, well, you know, I'm done for the day, and he closes up shop. But he, he, he brings us to verses 18 through 20. And here Solomon tells us really good news. He says in 18 through 20, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all of the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and to rejoice in his toil, this is a gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. So if the, if the fool is the one who is striving hard after riches and, and they're not actually satisfied because riches can't satisfy, the wise man or the wise woman is the one who would recognize that true enjoyment... Of God's gifts starts with true enjoyment of God himself and as we come to God as we as we come to the one who has uh, redeemed us and saved us the one who has revealed himself to us our souls can be satisfied and we can rejoice in all of the good gifts that he gives to us you see the main point of Solomon's argument comes into clear focus here in verses 18 through 20 where he says in in the previous ones there's there's no satisfaction in the in the love of wealth here he mentions God four times where in the in the last section he didn't mention him at all in 7 or in 8 through 17 here he mentions God four times he shows us that we're able to find joy and we're able to find thankfulness and contentment in the good gifts that God gives as we center on him as the object of our love and as we enjoy God himself and see him as the giver of all good things It allows us to rightly evaluate all that we have in light of his gracious provision. And so here's one of the things I I don't want you to hear this morning. It would be a mistake for Christians to think that we are to live our lives in some sort of dull, tasteless, joyless, you know, cardboard and oatmeal kind of existence until we die. You know, like we live in some kind of dull black and white video with not much to see, not much to savor, and not much to celebrate. That would be a mistake. That is not what Solomon is saying. It's not his point at all. What he's actually saying is that, you know, we're not being called to be tortured, but instead we're being called to die to lesser joys so that we would experience greater joys in the Lord. We would enjoy greater joys in Christ as he's you know thinking about the hope of the Messiah that would come. We're putting away lesser things for greater joys. We're we're looking to Him to satisfy our souls in the ways that stuff can't do that. In light of seeing the beauty and majesty of our great God, we are called to celebrate and to be thankful for the good gifts that God has given to us. This includes food and friendships. It includes wealth and the things that we can buy. It includes those Millennium Falcons that you put up on your shelf if you have one of those. We can eat and drink and be merry To the glory of God. You see, the the fool thinks that if I work hard enough, if I strive hard enough, if I just have enough, then my life will be satisfied. But the gospel doesn't say that. The gospel says that the God of all riches, the glorious one comes down to us, those who were poor and, and, and bare, those who were his enemies. And he gives to us, not something that we have to secure for ourselves, but he gives to us the greatest gift of all, his son. It's not something that we have to take for ourselves. It's something that he freely gives so that we would have life, have abundance. We don't have to secure riches for ourselves for God has given his greatest treasure to us, namely his son. He doesn't withhold his best from us, but he freely gives Jesus so that we can love and that we can worship and that we can be in fellowship with him forever. Made clean by the blood of our Savior. We don't have to secure safety for ourselves. He provides it through us through Christ. And it's he who initiates relationship with us. And frankly, he's the one who can't be outgiven. You see, life for the Christian is to be lived in celebration of our God for who he is and what he's done. Instead of grainy black and white, we are to see with our eyes the HD quality of the beauty of God's gift and his creation. We're to taste and see the bounty of the harvest that he has provided for us. And so do you like to cook? Do you like to eat? Good. It's no accident that God made so many different things that taste delicious, Right? I watch uh, the Great British Bake Off. I have no idea what they're making. Everything looks delicious. <laughs> it's no mistake that there's a, all sorts of variety of things that are delightful to eat and enjoy. It's an outflow of His goodness to us that He gives us these good things to experiment with, to, to bake with, and to enjoy. But also, even in the mundane, even in that, you know, that, that lunch that you take day after day, that peanut butter and jelly or whatever it is you take daily, or maybe it's just in the, the normal provision and maybe you didn't have as much today as you would have wanted, but you know you ate it and, we're, you know, and the next day you might have something different. Even in those places, even in the mundane, or if it's a little bit less than we wanted or different than we wanted, we can be joyful and thankful because God has continued to provide for our daily needs. This is what Solomon's point is. He's saying, look, we can find enjoyment in everything as we first find our hope and source in Christ. As long as those things aren't sinful. In fact, Solomon's counsel to us is to eat and to drink and to be merry and to find enjoyment in all of our work under the sun because this is freely given to us by God. So this is not a contradiction to what Jesus says in Luke 12, but he's highlighting a very specific difference. Jesus is correcting the one who would trust in his own self and his own hard work to sustain himself from day to day. That's why that guy was called a fool who was saying, let's eat, drink, and be merry. He was resting in himself. But here Solomon says that we're to focus our hearts on God who sustains us and who provides for us daily. And in so doing, we will enjoy our eating and our drinking and our work because all of them are from God. All of it's from him. And I think this is a freeing thought as you think about your own work. Maybe you're in a job that you don't like very much. Maybe you think this job stinks. But I think it's helpful for us as we begin to think about that the job that we have, the toil that we have under the sun, is also a gift from God. And as we recognize that, it helps us to work hard, not for man, but for the Lord. And to be thankful For it's God who placed us there. God gave us the ability to work in the place that we are now. How can I glorify him in the the wiping of the counter? How can I glorify him in the the taking care of the children? How can I glorify him in the leading of of, hundreds of people or whatever? How can I glorify God in this place that he's called me to be? It helps us to be thankful in the moment and recognize that he provides for our daily needs there as well. And so Solomon's saying, look, Eat, drink, and be thankful for all of the toil under the sun because it is a gift from God to you. Solomon tells us in verse 19 that it is the gift of God to have all that we have, but it's also the gift of God to rejoice in what we have. This is thankful as well because you might be in that place saying, okay, I hear what he's saying. I don't know how to do that. I don't know how. I don't feel thankful in my job. I don't feel thankful with what he's provided. I feel, frankly, frustrated about it. Verse 19 tells us that even the ability to enjoy those things is a gift from God. And so I want to encourage you if, you, if you don't see that capacity in your own life, we can ask the Lord to increase our ability to see and to agree with Him. We can ask Him to help us to see the beauty of Him, to help us to, to behold Him and to love Him more. And therefore, as we do that, we also can be more and more thankful and joyful for His kind provision for us we don't feel like we're there we can ask him to help us even in that i think it's implied that he will do that brothers and sisters in our in our sinful state we can't be satisfied because our longings are like a a never-ending well you take a rock and you and you drop it in and you think once it gets to the bottom that's all that i need to be satisfied that height and it never it never gets to the bottom There's always more that we need. There's always more that we want. There's always more that we desire. And it never satisfies if we're consumed by the love of wealth. We want more and more and don't find joy in those things. But what Solomon is showing us is that as we love God, and and we as Christians would know that it's through Christ that we're able to know and love God most fully. As we love God, here's a beautiful thing. Our capacity for joy and our capacity to actually be satisfied, for one, can be filled. God can fill us with joy and satisfaction as we rest in Him. We are a people who, who can be the most joyful of any people on the earth because God can satisfy our souls. And yet, it doesn't have to end with a small cup. But as we behold God in his glory, as we continue to see his faithfulness, as we walk with him, not just for five years, not just with 10 years, but for 1,000 years and 10,000 years, our joy will ever be increasing. Our satisfaction in Christ will ever be increasing as we behold him in his glory forever. As we see his faithfulness, we will be satisfied and continue to be satisfied forever. This is the hope that we've been called to. We are a people who have tremendous hope because we have been brought into the family of God by Christ. If you are a Christian, that is true for you. We are satisfied by the joys of God and will continually be satisfied by those joys for eternity. Our joy and satisfaction will be ever-increasing. And so God will, verse 20, occupy us with joy in our hearts, making our days feel quick. This is interesting, too, as he, as he kind of concludes. He says, as we behold and delight in God, our days on this earth will feel quick. Because whatever we're doing, we have joy in the Lord in it. Whether I'm in a prison cell, whether I'm preaching, whether I'm you know, meeting in a boardroom, all of these things are going to go quickly because I have joy in God. And so, brothers and sisters, my encouragement to us this morning is to trust the Lord and and ask him to help us to walk in this way. To be able to to behold his gifts as good things from him. To not disconnect them from his giving, but to to have them firmly rooted in our love of God. And in so doing, be thankful and joyful in all of them. Let us be the most joyful of all people doing that. Thankful at everything. Whether it's a small mill or it's driving down the road or whatever, we're joyful in the Lord. But this morning in particular, as we, as we get to take part in communion, I want to invite you in just a moment to come forward to eat and to drink and to be thankful. For the Lord has provided a meal for us by which we have fellowship with him. This meal symbolizes our union with Christ the union that is secured by Christ's blood and his body, his sacrifice and his resurrection, he has made a way for us to come to God and he invites us to his table to come and eat and drink. And so I pray that this morning that we, as we reflect on the goodness of the provision of our God, seen most clearly by the giving of his son, that we would come with thankfulness and adoration to our king who saves us. It is holy by his grace that we are able to receive his gift and joyfully and thankfully um, worship him. But I'll tell you this too, this meal that we take this morning is but a foretaste. It's a declaration, it's a a proclamation that, that Christ is returning and it's a remembrance, but it's also foreshadowing, it's pointing to a greater meal. A meal where we will one day be seated with the Lord around a banquet table, feasting and delighting in the marriage supper of the Lamb forever getting to enjoy being in his presence. And so let us come today joyfully, but also with the joyful anticipation of what's to come as well. So I'm going to pray for us, and then I'll give us a little bit more instruction, and I'm going to invite you to come. So Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Solomon uh helping us to see places where we could be we could be tripped up, we could be entangled, we could be lost. We're going to pray that through Christ we would, we would love you, God, most fully and most clearly. God, that we would be joyful and thankful of your grace, of your kindness, of your inheritance that you give to us. And I pray that we would come to this table thankful that it's by the blood of Christ that our sins are forgiven, that we have been made righteous by the blood of Christ and given his, given his standing, you know, a similar standing as him. Thank you, Lord. We who were the most desperate, we were who, your, who were your enemies, Lord. You have reconciled by the blood of Christ those who placed their faith in you. Thank you, Lord. Let us come joyfully today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.